Back in 2004, I ventured out to one of my favorite art house theaters to see a new Japanese horror movie titled Jew on the Grudge. I've been a fan of Japanese movies since I was a kid, but up to that point when I was sitting down to watch The Grudge, most of what I'd fallen in love with on the screen from Japan had been samurai epics, yakuza films, Godzilla, and anime. I remember being alone in the small theater as the lights dimmed, but when the lights came back on about an hour and a half later, I felt kind of like I was being watched. The ghosts of Kayako and Toshio had sufficiently creeped me the hell out, and I had fallen in love with a new aspect of Japanese cinema. I was now a fan of J-horror. I quickly discovered that Juon the Grudge was not the first in its cycle of modern Japanese supernatural horror movies, nor was it even close to being the last. So in the following years, I would devour as many of the Japanese ghost stories that came out before and after The Grudge. I even welcomed a lot of the American remakes of those same movies. As the years went on, the derivative nature of these Japanese movies began to wear thin, and the American remakes fared even worse a lot quicker. This particular brand of J-horror might have fallen out of fashion across the world, but its positive influence on the supernatural genre is still felt to this day. I'm still a big fan of the genre, and even though Jew on the Grudge isn't even my favorite among its own cycle of supernatural Japanese horror movies, it still holds a place in my heart for being my gateway into some of the most enduringly creepy movies I've ever seen. So when I learned that there would be a new American Grudge movie released in 2020, I was hopeful yet more than a little skeptical. The new Grudge was reported to not be a remake, but again, I was skeptical. The trailers absolutely looked like a remake, but that was fine with me. If they could at least capture even just a little of the original's magic that had been kind of diluted over the years, after remakes and sequels and on and on, then I'd be happy. Did they succeed? Find out tonight as I talk about The Grudge 2020 here in The Last Theater. Welcome once again to The Last Theater. My name is Chris, and as always, if this is your first time hearing my voice in The Last Theater, head over to cnjradio.com for every episode of this show, as well as all the other shows hosted by myself and the J in CNJ, Joey. As I sit here recording this, Joey is gearing up to release a huge top 100 of the decade over on Rock Strikes 10 very soon, so don't miss that. You can find that on cnjradio.com. And as for the usual disclaimer, yes, the first part of this episode covering The Grudge will be relatively spoiler-free, then I'll give a spoiler warning, and the final part of the show will spoil absolutely everything. But here is a quick non-spoiler spoiler for you. I didn't care much for The Grudge 2020. I feel like that's becoming a trend on these recent episodes where I look at brand new horror movies, and I don't want that to be the case, but I just can't really get behind these last three movies I've talked about. I will say that I dislike The Grudge the least out of the last three horror movies I've talked about here on the show. Uh, like Countdown was just dumb and eye-rollingly boring. Black Christmas 2019 was aggravating in its rushed and heavy-handed nature, but The Grudge was just kind of... I don't know, it was, it was just kind of there. It's just a thing I saw, but it didn't really affect me very much in any way. I felt like I'd seen it all before, and that's probably the biggest issue I had with it. It felt like a throwback to the mid-2000s era of American J-horror remakes. 
like it feels like it actually should have existed in that cycle of horror movies. It would have been as forgettable then as it is now, but at least it wouldn't have felt like a failed attempt to reinvigorate a genre. It wouldn't have gotten even my mildest hopes up, only to have them fizzle out during the opening scene of the movie. It just would have been another movie to watch when you get in the mood to see something like the American remakes of Pulse and One Missed Call and all of those other movies that came out at that time. I do feel like I've been pretty negative lately though, and that does kind of bug me. Uh, there is hope on the horizon because I plan to look at more movies I'm watching at home and in theaters at a greater frequency, and there are a few more horror movies coming to theaters this month that look like they could be pretty entertaining. But being negative, even when it's warranted, can put me in a kind of a bad mood, so I'm going to start this spoiler-free portion of the show by talking about a few things I liked or at least appreciated about The Grudge 2020. First, I appreciated the effort made to connect this movie to the previous movies in the series. To be clear, the main story is all about new characters, so in that way it absolutely is a at least a reimagining of the 2002 Japanese version as well as the 2004 American version, to say the least. The Grudge 2020 is effectively a remake, but the opening scene does create some connective tissue that technically makes it a spin-off. I've read that some places have called it a sidequel, but that's a stupid word and I'm sorry I even said that just for informational purposes. It's a spinoff. Anyway, yeah, the opening scene of the movie takes place outside the Saeki house, the haunted house featured in a few of the Juwan and Grudge movies, including the 2004 American remake. The time of this scene is shown to be 2004, so it definitely sets this new grudge in the same universe as the American franchise. We see a woman, Fiona, exit the house and talk to someone on her phone about having a bad experience inside the house and that she's coming home to her family in America. We briefly see the first of many, many attempted jump scares as Kayako, the female ghost from many of the movies, makes a brief appearance. From there, Fiona does head home, but she's brought the curse of the grudge with her. She did not bring the ghost of Kayako, though. She just brought the infectious rage that leads to murder, hauntings, and the spread of the curse. What the rest of the movie does is follow the lineage of deaths and hauntings spread by the curse Fiona brought back home with her from Japan. So, yeah, I like the fact that even though they clearly wanted a reboot, they still found a way to place this movie within the same continuity as the rest of the American-made grudge movies. It's kind of like how the Star Trek movies with Chris Pine as Kirk are actually connected to the original timeline in a kind of minor but very real way. It's like it's honoring the past rather than just erasing it, but on the plus side, the new movies won't be tied to any of the baggage inevitably brought with multiple movies in a single franchise. New filmmakers can feel free to write what they want without trying to make stuff work with previous continuity. Plus, there's always a chance for surprise cameos from past characters, since they all still exist. Of course, most of the main characters in the Grudge movies have died, but, I mean, they can come back as ghosts. That connection to the first American Grudge is the biggest thing I liked about this new one. Before I move on to the stuff I didn't like so much, the only other things I can really speak about with clear positivity are some of the scares. Yes, there was an aggravating over-reliance on jump scares, which I'll talk about more in a little while, but a few of them did work well for me. I mean, if you shoot 100 basketballs, you're bound to sink a few, right? 
I can think of at least a couple of scares that worked for me personally. The ones I'm thinking of specifically worked not because they came out of nowhere, but because I knew they were coming and they still got me. A lot of that had to do with a few of the ghost designs combined with a briefly tense atmosphere and a satisfying payoff. These effective scares were few and far between, and I can only think of a couple really, but when it worked I did enjoy it. But of course, scariness is about as subjective as comedy, which by that I mean it's highly subjective, so other viewers will certainly enjoy more or less of the scares than I did. So okay, I feel a little bit better now, a little bit of positivity to start off the show. I did pull out two of the most positive things I could from the movie. There are some other positives as well, but they're all contained within stuff that I didn't like so much. So let's start with the story and how it's told. Much like Juon the Grudge and the 2004 American Grudge, The Grudge 2020 tells the story of multiple groups of characters over multiple periods of time. And you know, just a quick aside before I go any further, why couldn't they have named this new movie something else? It's confusing enough trying to talk about reboots with the same name as the movie they're rebooting, but I think a lot of people talk about the Japanese grudge just by calling it the grudge as well. It's ponderous having to add a year or a country or both to the title when you're trying to talk about multiple movies like this. Like, at least give it a subtitle or something. The Grudge, The Curse Continues, or The Grudge, Rage in America. I don't know, something. Maybe something dumb like The Grudge, The Sidequel, because that will certainly save people money, because who wants to watch a movie called A Sidequel? And now I've said it three times, and I'm sorry. Moving on. So yeah, the story of The Grudge 2020 focuses on four main groups of people. First is the aforementioned Fiona, her husband, and her daughter. Next is a couple who work as the real estate agents for the house Fiona's family lived in up until some non-specific spoiler-free tragedy struck. Next is an elderly couple who move into Fiona's old house, and last is a police detective, Muldoon, her son, her new partner, and her new partner's old partner. If it seems like there are a lot of characters and it's a bit confusing, that's because there are a lot of characters and it's a bit confusing. But basically, The Grudge tells these four plus stories of these four groups of people concurrently, even though they all took place in a more or less linear fashion, one after another, pretty much in the order I just introduced them, between Fiona's arrival back in America in 2004 and the wrap-up of Detective Muldoon's investigation in 2006. What sets the plot in motion is Muldoon's investigation. Muldoon has just recently moved to town, so she is the conduit through which we, the audience, learn about the history of the haunting at Fiona's house. When Muldoon and her new partner, Detective Goodman, are called in to investigate a dead and rotting body discovered in a car at the side of an unused road, all trails lead back to Fiona's house. Goodman wants nothing to do with the house. It's clear he has a history with the house that he's not sharing, and his reticence pushes Muldoon to investigate even more. Muldoon's investigation serves as the basic framework for the plot. As she learns new things, we see those events take place in flashbacks or flash-forwards. That opens up a kind of complex framework where flashbacks lead into further flashbacks, or jumps forward, or jumps to the side, as all of these stories need further exposition and explanation. If it sounds like there are a lot of timelines and it's confusing, that's because there are a lot of timelines and it's kind of confusing. At least, it can be confusing at times. 
The positive thing to take away from this plot structure is that it's emulating the way the 2002 and 2004 movies were constructed. Those also told multiple stories that were only really connected through the house, and the timeline jumped back and forth a bit to fill in the blanks and to create tension. It's been a while since I've seen those older movies, so I can't speak definitively about how those structures worked at the time, but I don't remember either of them being very confusing. While I was able to follow The Grudge 2020 well enough, there were many times where all the jumping around felt unnecessary. It did take me a while to place some events timeline-wise in my head, and trying to make sense of the timeline while watching the movie definitely detracts from the experience. In my opinion, mounting tension should be the goal in a movie like this, so it should be more about feeling rather than thinking. Beyond just trying to make sense of where all these characters were in time, there were just too many characters getting too much focus. I guess Detective Muldoon is the main character, but it feels like she's in that position just by default. Efforts were made to give all of these characters some sort of tragic past or present, but with about equal screen time being given to everyone, it lessened the impact of any individual character struggle. They all came across as kind of flatly written, even though the actors' performances were good. I could have done with fewer characters if a stronger focus had been placed solely on Muldoon. That would have made her journey more meaningful and impactful, and it would have made for a bigger payoff overall in the end. More characters also mean more deaths, which meant more ghosts. There was a little girl ghost that seemed to be the main one, because, naturally, but there were also at least two others that I can think of specifically. While I was watching, there seemed to be more than three, but I wasn't always clear on who they were supposed to be. After reading some of the plot recaps, it does seem like there are only three ghosts, not counting the cameo by Kayako in the opening scene, but the fact that I was just confused while watching meant a lot of the scares felt kind of random. Even if I jumped, and I did a couple times, I had to pause afterwards to try to figure out who was haunting whom. Yeah, it all made sense more or less in the end, but the journey was definitely uneven. Before moving away from the ghosts, as another quick aside, I feel like it should be said that the scary little girl thing feels totally played out to me. I'm sure it can still work in certain circumstances, but personally, I'm kind of over it. The girl in this grudge, Melinda, seemed to be the main focus of the hauntings. She stood around staring at people with long, wet hair, and it never really felt that scary to me. Maybe I've just seen too many of these movies, but it just didn't work for me. I mean, the creepy little girl is definitely a cliche in horror movies like this at this point, so if the filmmakers were attempting to bring something new to the genre, then they should have focused on something different. I don't think the filmmakers of The Grudge were trying to break any new ground, though. And that's fine. I can fully get behind a derivative movie if it's done well or has something fun to grab hold of. I mean, I've dedicated a big chunk of my life to watching and discussing genre movies, and the whole thing with genre movies is that a ton of them are derivative. That kind of comes with the whole package of fitting into a particular genre. Those movies can still be great and fun and scary and anything else, though. That's why I love genre movies. The Grudge just isn't very scary, and it's not very tense most of the time either. It feels like it's made up of old recycled parts that people haven't really wanted to touch since the mid-2000s. The parts are kind of rusty, and there wasn't any real effort made to shine them up for a new audience. They were just kind of haphazardly pieced together and presented with a label that invokes a certain degree of nostalgia. 
The only thing I can really point to for having this grudge stand out is that it did add a fair amount of blood to the proceedings. Now, it's not like The Grudge is a gore movie, far from it. It's still a ghost story first and foremost. But there are some lingering shots of dead and decomposing bodies, and there are at least two scenes where blood flows freely. Of course I'm not opposed to any of that, I like it even, but blood and gore isn't strictly necessary for a haunted house movie. I talked about this a little in my Black Christmas 2019 episode when talking about slashers and ratings and whatnot. I think with The Grudge and how the curse of the haunting is presented, blood and violence is not necessarily unwelcome. Part of the explanation of the curse of the grudge is that when someone dies in rage or sadness, they can become stuck on earth to enact their revenge on anyone who comes within their domain. The rage part of the curse is the main focus of this version of the grudge, so seeing blood and violence could heighten that aspect of the movie. Strangely though, now that I'm trying to think about all the scenes that contain blood, none of them were really that much about rage. The scenes that I think of that were the most bloody were all about self-harm. People who were most affected by the hauntings would hurt themselves either in a delusional state or to try to stop themselves from being haunted anymore. The few rage attacks we did see were relatively bloodless, and most of that violence happened off-screen or in very quick cuts. So I guess what I'm saying here is that the blood and gore feels like an odd choice thematically. It seems to be there more for decoration than to really drive home any particular points that the movie is trying to make. So what point was The Grudge 2020 trying to make? I'm not sure. Perhaps it was just trying to drive home the hopeless nature of these Japanese-inspired ghost stories. Since most of the movie was told in flashbacks, it was really all about a descent from the sadness and loss each character carried with them to an even lower point of desperation and death. Even Detective Muldoon's story was pretty hopeless, even though she was the only person whose fate we weren't necessarily sure of as the movie went along. I don't mind hopelessness being the point. I just wish the movie made me feel more along the way. Scare me, or make me sad, or make me uncomfortable. Those are all valid things to attempt with a movie like this. Everything just felt kind of bland. Like I said earlier, I felt like I'd seen everything in this movie before. While I don't necessarily dislike this version of The Grudge, I don't particularly like it either. If I ever get in the mood to watch a Grudge movie, which I do on occasion, I'm definitely going to watch one of the earlier ones. There just doesn't seem to be any point to watch this one. If you're new to the Americanized J-horror genre, you might get a little enjoyment from this new entry in the series, but let it be a gateway to the earlier and better movies. At this point though, J-horror has had such a huge impact on all horror movies that even newcomers to this specific genre will feel like they've seen The Grudge 2020 before. My recommendation for The Grudge 2020? Skip it. Save your money or catch up on some of the other movies in theaters. January typically seems to be a dumping ground for movies that wouldn't do so well at any other time of the year against any sort of competition, and I think The Grudge fits pretty well into that description. I remember another J-horror remake released in January in America was One Missed Call. I fell asleep in the theater watching that one. And even though I did not fall asleep watching The Grudge, that kind of sums up my spoiler-free thoughts on this. The Grudge 2020 will not put you to sleep. And with that rave review, I am now issuing my spoiler warning. After a brief intermission, I will be back to spoil what needs to be spoiled about The Grudge. I don't really have a lot more to say, 
but I do have some thoughts on the ending that I'd really like to share, so I'll see you on the other side. back and thanks for sticking with me. This is the spoiler filled portion of the episode, but really I don't think it's any huge spoiler to say that nearly everyone dies by the end of the movie. I'd like to go over the plot as briefly as I possibly can to talk about what happened to all the characters since trying to talk around what happened is just making it more confusing. I'll go in chronological order as best as I can put it together so it'll make sense, and also because I can't really remember all the twists and turns in the timeline as they were presented to me in the movie. Okay, so here goes. So, as I said at the beginning of the episode, the woman named Fiona starts off in Japan outside the Saeki house. She is clearly haunted by Kayako and what is probably the little boy ghost from the originals, Toshio, because we see at least part of both of them in an unnecessarily convoluted, multi-part jump scare within the first, like, two minutes of the movie. After that jump scare, and I think that's where the opening credits take place, and then when we join back into the movie, Fiona has gone back to America where she has a child, Melinda, and a husband, Sam. We see the least amount about Fiona's family during the movie, but we learn by the end that Fiona ended up drowning Melinda in a bathtub and stabbing her husband before pushing him down some stairs. Fiona then killed herself, and that night of murder is what cursed the house and created the three main ghosts in the movie. Apparently, Fiona's family was preparing to move out of the house because they have two real estate agents, Peter and Nina, who are actively trying to sell the house. Now, we never see Peter or Nina interact with Fiona or Sam, but we are led to understand that this is what's happening during the Twisty Turny movie. At this point, the murders of Fiona's family have not been discovered, and Peter goes over to the house to get some signatures for something. He does not find Fiona or Sam, but he discovers Melinda standing on the front porch all alone. Of course, Melinda is now a ghost, but Peter does not know that. Peter hangs out inside the house to wait for Melinda's parents to come home, but after a while he is jump-scared throughout the house until he leaves. Peter goes home, and in a fit of rage, he kills Nina and himself. Shortly after all of those murders, Detective Goodman and his partner at the time, Detective Wilson, are assigned to investigate. For reasons that remain murky at best, Goodman refuses to ever enter Fiona's house, even though Wilson does. And this is weird, because when we meet Goodman later in the timeline, Goodman says that Wilson was the one that believed there was something wrong with the house, but Wilson is the one that entered, and Goodman didn't. So that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. But anyway, Wilson did enter the house, so the curse has attached itself to Wilson, and he is haunted to the point of attempting suicide just so he can get away from the ghosts. His attempt to kill himself fails, and Wilson is locked away in a psychiatric hospital. Around the same time, an elderly couple, Faith and William, move into Fiona's house. Faith's health is deteriorating, and they call for an assisted suicide consultant to pay them a visit. Well, William does this. It's unclear if Faith was ever in on any of these conversations. The suicide lady, whose name is Lorna, refuses to assist since Faith is clearly not in a coherent state of mind. Lorna decides to stay the night to help console William, but she is quickly subjected to the house's hauntings. 
In the morning, Lorna discovers that Faith has stabbed William to death and is in the process of chopping off her own fingers. Lorna tries to escape via car, but a ghost, I believe it's the ghost of Sam, appears in her passenger seat and causes her to drive off the road, crashing into a tree, and it kills her. Some undisclosed time later, Detective Muldoon arrives in town. Muldoon and Goodman, her new partner, discover Lorna's body, and Muldoon decides to pursue the investigation even though Goodman refuses to. Muldoon discovers Faith still in the house, with her missing fingers and all. Everything is filthy, and William's decomposing and worm-infested body is seated on the living room couch. Faith is hospitalized, and she kills herself in an explosion of gore when she throws herself down a stairwell. Muldoon starts seeing ghosts, and her investigation leads her to talk to Wilson. Wilson gouges out his own eyes after talking to Muldoon, and we never see Wilson again. Things get worse for Muldoon, so she attempts to free herself of the haunting by burning down the house. So Fiona's house is burned, and Muldoon moves to a new place with her son. But surprise, the fire didn't do anything, and Muldoon is still haunted. There's a fake-out as Muldoon hugs her son, but we see her real son in the background as he leaves for school. Muldoon was, of course, hugging the ghost of Melinda. And then we see the ghost of Fiona drag Muldoon down the hallway. Then the movie cuts to an exterior shot of the house, and for some incredible coincidence, it's the same house where Peter and Nina lived, the real estate agents. And then the credits roll over a silent shot of the house. So that was a lot, right? Were you able to follow that plot? That is about as succinct as I can make it while telling you the ins and outs of each of these characters. Did you start to feel for any of those characters? Now imagine writing down everything I just said, cutting out every other sentence, putting it all in a tumbler of some sort, and then reading the plot again by picking out each sentence at random. That's often how it felt watching The Grudge. At one point in the movie, William, the elderly gentleman married to Faith, he talked about the house. Fiona's house, I mean, not the house in Japan and not the one that Muldoon moved into that was owned by Peter and Nina. He says that the house collects spirits in this timeless way. The way he put it made it sound like everyone who has ever and who will ever step foot in the house is a part of it. Like, literally, whoever physically enters the house is there with everyone else. His summation was hopeful in a very dark way, because he was hoping that his wife Faith would still be there with him if she died in the house. It kind of reminded me of the last episode of Netflix's Haunting of Hill House. I imagine that's what the filmmakers were going for with all the twists in the timeline. They were trying to suggest thematically and visually that all of these events, all of this rage, is revisited over and over as the curse spreads throughout space and time. It's all connected, it's all inevitable, and it's all there at the same time. But again, the result was that it just got confusing. Still, I suppose I do appreciate the effort. About the ending, though. Despite not believing for a second that burning the house down would do any good, and despite not believing for a second that Muldoon was actually hugging her real son, and despite not caring that the house she was in was the same one that Peter and Nina died in, I think I enjoyed the final shot of the movie. My eyes stopped rolling when they cut to that wide outside shot of the house. It was a sudden cut from Muldoon screaming as she was being dragged, just to total silence as we looked at the outside of this house on a sunny day. 
the movie just stayed on that same shot in total silence as the credits began to appear on the screen, and it stayed like that for what seemed like a full minute or two. I, I kind of liked that. It was like, alright, that's it, that's the movie. You sit there and you think about what you just saw or get out. It doesn't matter to us. Time's up and it's time to leave. It was a very definitive and strong statement and a movie that seemed to hedge its bets on familiar scares and overdone scenarios. It really was too little too late though and despite the things I appreciated about The Grudge 2020, I didn't really like it. I think I'll only see it again when, inevitably, I attempt to watch every movie in the Juwan and Grudge franchises. I'm sure I'll get to that franchise retrospective at some point, and though it probably won't be anytime soon, you'll be able to find it on cnjradio.com. Also check out my Twitter, at TheLastTheater, and get ready for more stuff coming your way very soon. The next theatrical review I hopefully will be doing will be the underwater monster movie aptly titled Underwater. I love underwater movies, so I have my fingers crossed that this one will be fun. Look forward to that and much more on cnjradio.com here in the last theater. And until then, bye.